Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, we explore what's going on in unbanked and underbanked communities, as well as other structural things going on in the financial services system. Stick around for our conversation with Dr. Terry Friedline. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed, and please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dan Maseka. Dan, great to see you. Ross, great to see you as well. And we have an exciting interview this week for you. Ross uh, went digging into the depths of the internet to find an expert on this particular topic, which was something that he and I admittedly knew very little about. Yeah, one of the reasons we do this show is that I think you and I think of ourselves as educators in in a way, like we want to put good content out there in the world uh, where people can learn from from the things that we know in our process. But uh, I think we're also exploring and learning as well. And and this is an area that you and I admittedly didn't know a whole lot about, um, which is what's going on structurally for, for folks in kind of the underbanked or unbanked uh, segment of the market. And there's a lot that gets written on this on whether some of the new uh, fintech is going to really eliminate some of these problems. And so we, we went looking for an expert on uh, somebody that had studied what's actually going on in that space. And is this the right answer? Uh, and that led us to a professor at the University of Michigan, Dr. Terry Friedline, who was gracious enough to, to join us for the show this week. Let's take you over to that interview now. On today's show, we welcome a professor from the University of Michigan and the author of Banking on a Revolution, Why Financial Technology Won't Save a Broken System. Dr. Terry Friedline, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Check Your Balances. Thanks so much for having me. You have researched a number of things that I think Dan and I are really interested in learning more about. Specifically, the the tagline on your book talks about to create a more equitable and democratized financial system. We need to shift the balance of power away from banks and lenders and towards people. What does that mean for you? What does that look like? Can we start there? Sure. So um, I, I'm in the School of Social Work at the University of Michigan, and I think people often wonder, you know, this is not a topic that social workers typically focus on. Um, and I'm going to get to your question kind of in a roundabout way, I suppose. Um, but I was a clinical social worker for a number of years in the juvenile justice system, and so I worked at residential treatment facilities and worked with young men who were placed there by the court system. And one of my jobs was to help them, you know, quote unquote, transition to independent living. So they had lived in state care for three or four years, uh, were moving out to live on their own. And of course, there are a lot of like economic and financial decisions that come in that moment when you're, you know, going to live on your own. And so one of the things that I did was to, to take these young men um, to get, you know, their kind of their credentials, their identification. You know, many didn't have with them their birth certificates or their social security, social security cards, driver's licenses, all things that you need for a bank account. Um, and then would go with them 
to a bank to begin to open an account so they could establish, you know, some sort of financial relationship with an institution, um, begin to develop, you know, a credit record. And in those experiences, I think we can all pretty much appreciate, um, you know, moments in our lives when we have felt humiliated and been made to feel small, um, when we have not been served, when we have, you know, honestly been looking for something. Um, and this is what I experienced with young men while we were at the bank. And, you know, many of the young men um, due to, you know, a series of, of systems of discrimination, you know, were black and brown. Most of the bankers were white. Um, and they were at a, you know, really, uh, you know, it was a big power differential um, between them and the bank wanting to serve them. And so uh, when we think of financial inclusion, which is often where my research has focused, and we want to help, you know, get people the financial tools that they need, uh, you know, to really survive in our day-to-day society. Um, there is this power differential between a bank that, you know, can decide uh, the tools that you have access to, um, you know, and, and a person who's just trying to get what they need really to make it in life. Um, and I think until we narrow that gap, um, you know, that power gap, and and give more power to the people who need it um that that the tools that we have like financial technologies um aren't going to be sufficient um in expanding financial access and when you refer to the tools and financial technologies um i think one of the major disruptors in the world of finance have been these mega apps like paypal venmo cash app and I suspect from the people who created it, they see those as tools that might be a huge benefit to those communities. I mean, in the very physical and direct sense, you are removing that visual, you know, discomfort of being in a group of people who may not look like you or may feel like they don't want to serve you. Have you seen that being a benefit to to kind of the financial system as a whole, or is that not even scratching the surface of the direction we should be heading? That's a really great question. Um, and I think it can be answered in a couple of different ways. So if you experience discrimination at a bank and you can use technology to avoid, you know, that in-person experience, like, like the young men that I was, um, you know, speaking to, then, you know, that, that serves you to have to avoid, you know, walking into a bank and, and have somebody judge and discriminate, you, you know, discriminate against you. And at the retail level, that might be really helpful to you, you know, in figuring out, you know, where and when and how to cash your checks or, you know, how to pay online bills. My, um, you know, my cautions about fintech is that it's it's so quickly presented as a solution. So it's so quickly presented as well. You know, it's okay if there's not a bank branch nearby because, you know, we have all of these really great technologies that are easy to use. Um, that are right at your fingertips and, and that that doesn't account for the things, you know, things like, you know, that you have to pay to maintain your cell phone, that that's expensive. Um, when you upgrade your cell phone, hopefully, or, you know, when, when the bank upgrades their app, you know, when payment systems upgrade their apps, hopefully your cell phone is of sufficient quality to sustain those upgrades. I mean, uh, you know, those are all sorts of questions that we have to ask ourselves um, it, you know, and, and make sure that when we think of something as 
you know, a possible solution that it doesn't just end, you know, end there. So the, there's a joke uh, about a woman that goes into a bank and uh, tells the teller, you know, I'd like to take out $20. And the bank teller says, well, for, for transactions under $100, you need to go to the ATM. And so the woman who has a pretty large account with the bank says, okay, well, give me $10,000. And the banker painstakingly counts it out, goes through all of this cash, pushes it across the counter. The woman takes a 20 off the top and goes deposit the rest of this back into my account. And uh, I find it funny because my, my experience in banks, which I admittedly don't visit physically that much anymore, is they don't really want to talk to me either, right? It, it, part of it seems like it's just a customer service and maybe even a margin problem at the bank level that they don't want to do physical banking. They'd like to move everything online. Is this a structural banking problem in general that they don't really want in-person visits? Or is it more so where they choose to put branches and, and um, I guess, a much much deeper lying issue than that? I think there are a couple of things kind of tied up in that. Uh, one, it's cost savings for the bank, right, to, to not have to do so much in-person banking. Um, you know, I think maintaining a branch costs, um, you know, around four to $600,000 per year in addition to, you know, build, like, the cost to build a branch, um, maintaining it, you know, is a is a budgetary cost for them keeping it there, um, and and technology is cheaper, right, for the bank. Uh, but I've spent the last two years interviewing people who work in banks, and you know, at the teller level, at the customer service level, um, customer interactions are how it, that is what they're trained to do. Um, and how they're trained to make money, and it, and in some cases, um, you know how they are compensated for their for their jobs. Um, and so, some of the language of um, oh, quotas and stuff that some of the language of quotas has gone away a little bit. Um, you know, given some ba- like large bank scandals, but that language has just been replaced. Um, by other things like, so, you know, we will offer you solutions. We will help, we will find the challenges in your financial lives and we will offer you solutions to those. Um, so the language has just morphed a bit. Um, and so, so, you know, there's cost savings for the bank. Um, sales is, is still, you know, pretty, pre- pretty present in those solutions. So internally, if you're an employee, you know, you need, you need that foot traffic to be able to make your paycheck or to be able to get your bonuses, um, to be able to get the raise or to move up in the company ladder. Um, and so from the customer perspective, then, um, you know, that they're selling happening when you walk in through the door, um, they're trying to learn things about you, you know, to, to make you a good pitch. And, um, and, and when that happens, then, you know, I think that's that's an opportunity also for exploitation, um, you know, on the customer side. Dan, Dan actually started his career at one of those banks. Yeah, my very first job was at, as a banker at Wachovia, which became Wells Fargo. And it was r- really interesting, especially in retrospect, thinking about the culture there, because, as you say, you depend on foot traffic to get solutions into the hands of customers. But on top of that, Wells Fargo had this thing where it's not enough to get someone to open a checking account or a debit card. 
they judged you on how often you can get them to take four or more things in an interaction, which almost made discrimination greater because you didn't care that someone came and opened a checking account. You needed them to take these four things. Otherwise, that was a tick in the loss column for you. So you'd almost rather them take nothing than take a couple things and then leave. Um, and, and you know that's how people were judged at the time. And clearly, that's gotten them into a lot of hot water. But uh, you know, as you talk, that resonates greatly with me. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I'm a very specific example. So how, how much of this, in your view, is a uh, financial literacy concern and, and just a knowledge gap versus kind of the structure of the system around people? And um, I, I've been kind of in the camp that when I, when I think back to high school, the fact that I had to take calculus, but that personal finance and how a credit card works and how to, how to open a checking account is not part of the education system and is really a lot more fundamental than the calculus I haven't used since I last probably sat in that classroom. I guess, how do you see that playing into the puzzle of how we could start to fix some of this? Yeah, I do see these things as structural. So, um, so I think in our current economy, you know, there is a lot of onus on an individual to get things right. So if you make a mistake, often there's, you know, little safety net. Um, you know, if you have a financial emergency, your options are limited. Um, if you have options at all, they, they could be bad ones. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of onus on you uh, to be able to navigate those choices. And I think that's often what we mean by financial literacy. Um, but I think there's some slippage in the idea because when we, when we talk about things like the racial wealth gap or discrimination in financing, um, you know, things that, you know, very clearly have their roots in structures, um, you know, financial literacy and, and being able to discern good choices will not close those, um, you know, will not close the racial wealth gap, will not close or minimize some of those, um, some of those structural issues. And at the same time, you know, we need to figure out individually how to survive since, you know, societally, you know, we take a more individual responsibility or individual rights, you know, or, or personal approach, um, you know, rather than a collective one. Uh, I read a really interesting book a while back called Winners Take All, which addresses, you know, the capitalist drive to try to improve financial systems. But one of the themes was that that actually masks a lot of the problems because it provides what appear to be personal solutions, but doesn't address the structural issues underneath them. So you go on ignoring them for longer amounts of time because you feel like progress is being made regardless. And, uh, I'd never really thought of things in that way. You know, I, I think oftentimes these new developments and disruptions are great, but, you know, if it takes us further down the road and further away from addressing the root of an issue, you know, I can see how that can prolong a problem and, and perhaps make it greater. Yeah. Um, one of the bankers that I interviewed a few months ago um, was telling me about their bank's app. And it had a thing, you know, what they referred to as these disappearing transactions. Um, and customers would come in and, you know, they would complain. This person was a branch manager and they would say, 
my balance, I checked my balance before I made this purchase and, and it said I had enough, but the ways that, um, you know, payments were processed uh, coupled with, um, the app having some sort of refresh feature that took some of those purchases away and then replaced them later on in that interim space, people would think they had a balance, um, that they didn't actually have and would eventually overdraft the account. And this branch manager would have customers come in and, and didn't really believe them. And, and, you know, then she also had an account at the bank and had it happen to her and, and then realize, you know, indeed, you know, this is something that's happening. It's, it's now happened to me. It's now happened to me several times and I haven't been believing my customers. And, and I think this example is illustrative because, you know, as an individual customer and using, you know, your bank app and um, having all of those arbitration, you know, mandatory arbitration clauses on our checking account features that says that you can't band together with other customers, you know, and, and sue a bank or bring them to court or hold them liable collectively. Um, as we're all individually on our technology, um, we don't even have sometimes the possibilities to see these things as like collective and that many of us are experiencing them. And so I think the structure, you know, th that structure primes us to think of it as individually and, you know, further conceals, you know, what are these structural problems and kind of then limits how we, how we respond to or how we challenge them. So uh, one of the things that you've written about at least at a high level, is the possibility of postal banking, using the post office and their location to reach people that don't currently have access to other banking services. I think a lot of people's immediate reaction there would be to scoff a little bit and go, well, the post office is fairly mismanaged on its own. How can we trust them to provide this service? But uh, at a fundamental level, what would be the most critical things that we could offer through a postal banking service? Does it need to be a full service bank? Or are there just a couple key components that if you can get those out into the community, really add a lot of value and move the needle? Yeah, I do support postal banking and other forms of public banking um, because I think that I think that those options, um, you know, appeal to different people that might not be reached, for example, by technology or might not be reached by, you know, a, a major bank building a branch in their community. And there are a couple of variations you know, what postal banking could look like. Um, and, and I think some of the concern about could the post office do this, you know, it, it is mismanaged. Some of that has been created and manufactured by, by policy decisions and, and postal banking, postal banking leadership. Um, and it, it existed for a while until, you know, there was a strong bank lobby against it back in the sixties. Um, you know, I think that can range from, having, you know, just a, a small deposit account at the post office to offering, you know, small dollar loans that could be alternatives to payday lenders and check cashers. So there's a, there's a suite, uh, you know, of possibilities, a range of possibilities, what that could look like. Um, a pilot to, you know, test and see how these things could work has been proposed, you know, for a number of years um, to be able to see how viable is the postal, postal banking option. We haven't been able to we haven't been able to test that yet, um, and once we 
once we are, I think we'd have some answers to some of these questions. Um, ironically, Canada just implemented their postal banking pilot. So we will see in Canada what postal banking, you know, looks like, looks like there. Um, but in other countries, it is, you know, one of the largest um, banking options um, for people around the world. Who's got a good example of that that we can look at? So if Canada's starting now, but but does somebody have one that we should be looking at as kind of a more uh, fully fleshed out kind of version? Yeah, Japan has a has a large postal banking uh, postal banking system. Um, the UK, I believe, India has had postal banking. You know, I think there are about ninety different countries around the world that have postal banking and that wow. uh, have it in a robust form. Um, that we could look at. I'm almost embarrassed to say that I've never even heard of the concept of postal banking until it was brought up, you know, uh, leading up to our discussion here. Uh, and who knew it was so prevalent around the globe? Yeah, yeah. So it's not a it's not a new idea, although it is new to many of us, you know, hearing about it. Um, it is not completely brand new. Is the other fear there just that? Uh, now you've got private commerce competing directly with the U.S. government. Essentially, if, is that the is that the internal fear? Is that now we're creating a competitor that does not have to be profit seeking to what is otherwise free business? I think that could be part of it. Yeah, um, and I think that that right some of that profit seeking is you know what limits banks from you know offering the you know, the services that we think they, they should be offering in marginalized and vulnerable communities. Um, so if the post office is positioned to do that and, and banks have already divested from it, um, you know, maybe the, maybe the concern about competition, you know, really, really isn't as much of a concern as we think it is if they're already, you know, if for-profit banks already aren't in those communities. It reminds me a lot. There was a Planet Money episode that's really great, and they talk about uh, there's a town in North Carolina that had very poor infrastructure from an internet perspective, and the town decided that they wanted to build their own fiber network. And Time Warner, they, they first approached Time Warner, who was their you know essentially utility, and said, "Will you do this?" They said, "No." They said, "Well, if we pay for it, will you do it?" They said, "No." And so then they tried to buy it themselves, and Time Warner came in and lobbied really hard to get it shut down so that they could never do this. They they were essentially not allowing this town to improve its own infrastructure. And this feels a little bit like that to me, where they're saying, okay, well, we don't want you to compete with us as the government, but we're not going to do it either, right? And I think that's kind of what, what you're saying is if, if they were going to do it, they'd be doing it already. Yeah, exactly. That's a great example of that. So if you listen to any of the, you know, congressional hearings, the Senate or the House committee hearings, um, you know, where banks come in, you know, the CEOs come in and testify, you know, they often ask for, well, you know, let us give us a little bit more time or we're starting this new program, but they've been around for a really long time um, and are, you know, arguably, you know, have a good bit of expertise in what they do. So, um, so I think that we should be holding them, you know, more accountable if they aren't already doing something that society, you know, we as a public think that they, need to be doing, um, you know, like building our own internet infrastructure. Um, if, if they're not going to do it for us, let us do it ourselves. Um, then, 
then I think that we should be, you know, holding their feet to the fire a little bit more. Um, do it or, or, you know, give us the pathway, you know, open the pathway so that we can do it ourselves. So you mentioned that, that financial literacy, you, you don't necessarily think it's, it's purely a literacy option. It's, it's more a, a structural piece. Um, you know, I, I think about folks like Dan and myself that, that care about this and, and, and genuinely want to help people. Um, our local financial planning association does a pro bono day each year, but I mean, it's just, you know, it, it, it feels good to do that. It feels good to help, but I'm sure it's not even scratching the surface on what needs to be done. Uh, where can we be plugging in as folks that are not necessarily bankers that don't choose where these branches go? Um, what can we be doing to, to help in these cases? That's a good question. I suppose um, whenever I have these questions for myself, um, I actually have a list of questions that I turn to that I, I think originally comes from Mary M. Kaba that, you know, is, you know, asks these questions about um, who's already doing this. You know, what can I be doing right now to be helpful? Um, there's two more questions that I can't remember the, you know, the, the set, but, but those are questions that I start with, you know, to think of, um, you know, you know, where am I at and who's already doing this? Um, and then is there something very concrete that I can be doing, you know, right now to help? And, um, you know, in the, in the book, Banking on a Revolution, one of the things that I write about is, you know, maybe the financial literacy that we need is on this kind of structural level. I mean, so one of the struggles that I've had in this area is, is there are a lot of social workers engaged in financial coaching and, and financial counseling. We work at nonprofit organizations that, that do this sort of work. Um, and so for myself, I have like often thought, you know, how do I navigate this you know, it seems to be, you know, something very practical at the personal level while also, you know, having roots in this structure. And, and so one of the things that I've, that I wrote about and that I've been thinking about is, um, you know, how we, how we teach people that, you know, there are systems that are working together that, that make some of these problems like poverty, like the racial wealth gap, like access to credit that make them structural. Um, and our financial literacy efforts often don't contain that structural component. Right? So um, Americans for, for Financial Reform and Take on Wall Street have a great curriculum that's, you know, geared toward, you know, this kind of structural level. Um, and so does the Debt Collective or Strike Back. They have a they have a kind of like an operations manual on debt um, that focuses at the structural level. Um, so that people can know, I'm trying to make all the right decisions. Why does this keep happening to me? Um, you know, that it's not a, it's not your personal fault or individual failing and you are making the right decisions. And there's all this structure happening around us that we're often not trained to see. Um, so let's help each other see that structure a little bit better. So uh, I think we've spent most of our time today kind of on this underbanked and unbanked community. But you've also done research on the effects of student loan debt and lack of emergency savings. Is there anything in that world that I, I guess is, is particularly top of mind for you or, or that you'd, you'd want to share with our audience in terms of your, your research and what you've been learning? Sure. Um, I mean, of course, there's a great debate happening about student loan debt cancellation right now. Um, 
and a lot of good researchers doing work in this area. Um, one of my colleagues, Sophilia Morrow, and I, um, we've been interviewing women about their debt um, over the last year or so. Um, it's happened to coincide with, with COVID also. Um, but we've been wondering, you know, what are the like health and mental health effects of debt? Um, and, and, you know, we often focus on, you know, the financial, you know, do people have, you know, sufficient savings? Can they afford groceries, pay their bills, save for retirement? Uh, we also wanted to know, you know, how people were experiencing, you know, their own health related to debt. Um, and it is significant. Um, most of the people that we've talked with have been black and indigenous and Latino women um, who talk about debt as an imperative for their daily survival, um, something that is going to be with them until they die, um, something that is so stressful that, you know, places them in emergency rooms and in, you know, kind of like crisis health situations um, because of this persistent and long-lasting debt. And we weren't originally thinking about student loan debt. You know, we were originally thinking about, um, you know, payday loan debt, check cashing debt, maybe debt from, from taxes and the IRS. But student loan debt um, has played significantly on people's minds um, and therefore on their health. And so, you know, of course, these are qualitative interviews and, and there's you know, more looking across the kind of population about how these patterns are experienced. But, um, you know, it's pretty significant to talk with people and and experience the kind of like the day-to-day -day dramatic effects to their health and mental health. That's devastating. Anecdotally, I've also worked with people who are in otherwise a pretty decent financial shape who feel the same way about what I would call good debt, like mortgage debt, which makes sense potentially for them to hang on to, but it makes them so anxious knowing that it's out there, especially, you know, as they're thinking about their financial futures, that they'll almost do anything they can, even if it's to their detriment, to pay that off so that they feel like that weight off their shoulders and free. Uh, so I suspect, you know, sometimes when you approach it analytically, it can drive you crazy because people make irrational decisions. But I think that physical and mental health element to it can explain a lot of that, which you can't always solve by crunching numbers. I mean, the other shocking thing on the student loan side is that they're basically impossible to get rid of, right? A bankruptcy doesn't even remove them. So you take somebody that's in the worst of financial situations by by most measures is saying, okay, I, I need a hard reset from the system to help me get back on my feet. And the student loans are like, who cares? We're, we're staying, right? I mean, the, the only way to get rid of them is to pay them or die. That, that, that's essentially it. I mean, that is a scary, scary way to look at debt where everybody told you, hey, go to college. This is your future. You know, this is what you got to do. Yeah, everybody did that. Everybody took that advice. Um, and I think that's changing a little bit um, that I think judges are increasingly realizing the hardships that student loan debt causes and might be more willing to to discharge it in bankruptcy proceedings. Um, but still, um, a, a study that I was reading the other day was about women who filed for bankruptcy. Um, and 
just the gathering of the paperwork and everything that was needed to require, you know, everything that was needed to be able to file for bankruptcy, um, you know, contemplated suicide for having to pull all this paperwork together, which is even before, right, before you get, uh, you know, to the, to the court hearing and, and to know whether or not your debt has been discharged. Just, just the sorting through that, um, you know, kind of like you've mentioned, Dan, the anxiety that, that people have about, you know, wanting to pay it off and wanting it to be gone. I mean, it's severely depressing. And we have structured society on debt. I mean, our society is structured so much on debt. Yeah, I mean the, the the ability to put your hands on capital opens a lot of doors, right? Both both in terms of what it could allow you to do, but also the hole that it allows you to dig yourself into, right? And it, and it it really does cut both ways. You're just meeting us for the first time. Ross and I are both entrepreneurs in, in multiple ways. I'm a co-owner of a brewery, and I think of all the debt that we had to take on to get that started, and even as a fairly established business to this day, all the things I've had to sign basically all my finances away for, you know, if, if I weren't willing to do that, I wouldn't have the business, but also, you know, if I really sat and thought about it, it would drive me crazy of how overextended I on paper was for that. And talking about access to opportunity, you know, if you're unwilling or unable to do that because of structure, you're m- potentially missing out on a lot of opportunity, even if you were willing to take on those kinds of risks to to build something. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we wanted to ask women, uh, you know, about their debt was how did they experience like joy or resistance or, you know, did they, did they experience those things? Um, thinking particularly, particularly that we were talking with black and brown women and um, debt, and topics of joy and resistance, creativity, you know, that, you know, debt can undermine the possibilities for those experiences. Um, but one of the things that somebody said was, um, like, I refuse to let it take over my mind. So I refuse to think about it. And I refuse to know exactly what those details are. Not that I'm ignoring it. But, you know, I re- if you were if you like some you know, constantly reminded of what those numbers were, um, that that would be overwhelming and stressful. And so one of the ways that, you know, women talked about this was, you know, refusing to let it take that center stage in their life as a, as a way of, you know, kind of resisting some of that and, and still maintaining their own joy. Well, Dr. Friedlein, I really uh, appreciate you spending this time with us. This is an area where uh, I think Dan and I admittedly don't know enough, uh, and and uh, it's clearly important. Getting getting more access to more people uh, is, is critical, and I really appreciate the research that you're doing, and and that you're willing to come on our our show and share it with us today. Well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate the, I appreciated the conversation, and and hope your listeners do too. Once again, we really wanted to thank uh, Dr. Friedline for joining us. Again, her book is called Banking on a Revolution, Why Financial Technology Won't Save a Broken System. Uh, I think she's working on important issues and, and things that, that really affect a lot of people. And uh, I, I realize with a personal finance and investing themed podcast, I think most of our audience is uh, probably not suffering from some of these issues. But I, I think it's important for all of us as as consumers and as 
uh, people that deal with these banks and all of these apps that, that we kind of understand the landscape. So uh, again, big, big thank you to her and, and appreciate her perspective. I definitely appreciate her coming on and being able to learn more about these matters. You know, sometimes as Ross and I talk a lot about trying to help others, but we find that the people who come to us for help are folks who are already in a pretty decent financial position. And it kind of shelters us from some of the troubles that other people are experiencing, either on an individual basis or a structural basis. So uh, I encourage everyone to learn more about what's going on and, and see what they can do to help. And uh, I also thank Dr. Friedline for joining us and hope to read more of her publications in the future. If you are out there listening to the show and you're interested in sending us a question, check your balances at Outlook.com. It's also in the description for the episodes each week. We love feedback from our listeners and uh, certainly hope that you'll join us again next week. <laughs>